As we come now to to God's word, uh, we're going to be in John chapter 6, again as we continue through what uh, we have begun here in the Gospel of John, we pass on. Perhaps, um, perhaps this comes at an opportune time or the, the right time, but maybe you, you in your own life have recalled a time when in a, a day you just seem to keep bouncing from crisis to crisis. You wake up in the morning and it starts bad and then it just keeps getting worse as the day goes on and gets worse and worse and you just can't seem to get out of it. Or maybe that's been the season of life that you're in and you just make it through one trial and you come to face the next one and the next one and it just doesn't seem to end. Perhaps like being in a storm with wave after wave crashing over you, you feel like you're never going to escape. You're going to drown. We see it in many ways. We see it through many things. Even, even now, the, the pressure mounts on people as the increase of, of living continues to grow and the, the pressure of providing for families and, and, and living and providing what we need to or the relentless pressure of the deadline that's always ahead of us at school or in work. As we've come to John chapter 6, We have seen that Jesus and his disciples have been in an intense time of ministry. It has not been an easy six months to a year or so that has uh, just passed for them. It's been difficult and it's been busy and hard. And so Jesus has taken them and he's put them in a boat and they've sailed across the Sea of Galilee to try and find a quiet place to get away and to rest and find some respite. But as they get to the other side, we saw last week there was no breather for them. And as they spend that day again ministering to people and then seeing Jesus do an amazing miracle of feeding the 5,000 men and their children and their families all there with just this small little morsels of bread and, and fish, we see the next crisis roll in. As we continue in our text in John chapter 6, I'm going to begin reading in verse 15. It says, When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. And when even was come, his disciples went down unto the sea and entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark. Jesus was not come to them. The sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship. They were afraid. But he said unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. Our Heavenly Fathers, we come to your word to see your truth, to see you open our eyes, encourage us and strengthen us as the Spirit uses your word within us. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus has, just that day, deliberately put his disciples into a crisis with the feeding of the 5,000. 
then we see here the next crisis arises. And so while they're still in the shadow of that wonderful moment, they're still in wonder of how Jesus has, has fed all of these people with just a few loaves and fishes. In the midst of that, Jesus throws them directly into the very next crisis. Just like the first crisis of the feeding of 5,000, this one too is by direct will of God. He has deliberately put them in this place. And so while they're still trying to find rest, they're still trying to find a breather, they're still trying to find some respite, they find none. In fact, it gets worse. The circumstances just keep getting worse. It's a fitting scene, I think, this storm at night, because the outer circumstances, the the storm and the darkness, illustrate the inner turmoil the disciples feel and what they're enduring. Imagine, if you can, how the disciples feel. Perhaps overwhelmed, certainly run down. They're in the middle of this, this sea and they're, they're out of control and they're confused about what's going on. You just want a break, but you can't seem to find it. One trial, one crisis, temptation follows, crashing upon another, crashing over you and over you until you are sure that you cannot stay afloat. We talk a lot as Christians, about trusting God. And the times like the feeding of the 5,000, those we love. We love those moments of trusting God and of seeing God work. They're hard and they're intense, uh, of course, but they're not devastating. Nobody is going to die in that moment. The end, of course, produces awe and trust and wonder. But storms, storms are something different. Storms are far more intense. We don't like them. In fact, we plan to avoid storms in our life. We do everything we can to avoid turmoil and trouble like storms in our life. They are not part of our plan. And therein is part of our problem. They're not part of our plan. Often when we talk about trust, It's about trusting God to come through with our plan. We want to believe that God will do what we want him to do and take care of things the way we want him to take care of them. And then often, we don't connect God's work with our situation. We miss what God is doing, looking somewhere else, looking for something else. So this morning, let's learn some lessons in trust in the middle of a storm. The first thing that we see as we look through this passage is this, is that we're too easily wrapped up in our own agenda. We're too easily wrapped up in our own agenda. Our text begins, and I'll start from verse 14 here. It says, then those men, when they had seen the miracles that Jesus did, said, this is of truth, the prophet that should come into the world. Now, as Jesus hears and knows what's going around, it says, when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain. 
himself alone. See, we have our preconceived ideas about what Jesus should be and what he should be like. You remember, of course, the beginning of John chapter 6 tells us that we're near Passover. So they're remembering deliverance. They're anticipating deliverance. The whole idea of Passover is about what the Messiah will do and the deliverance he has brought and what he will bring. In this season, in this season of nationalism and, and hope and, and, and desire, they're assuming that Jesus or that the Messiah would deliver them from Rome. That's their immediate thought. They're under the oppression of Rome and they assume the Messiah will come and free them from there and set up his own kingdom as he had promised. But of course, they had missed all of the references to the suffering Messiah to what would need to happen. Of course, that's natural human instinct. We're not looking for a savior that is weak, or at least appears to be weak. When we think of a hero, when we think of a savior, we're thinking of someone strong, of someone mighty, of a great deliverer who will make himself known and powerfully extract us from our problems. And we miss some of the most important truths. Despite everything that Jesus had been saying, over these years and teaching. These people saw in Jesus what they wanted to see in Jesus. He hadn't told them he was there to deliver them from Rome. He hadn't told them that he was there to do what they wanted. He told them he was there to save them from their sin. He told them that he was calling them to repentance. But they hadn't heard that because what they wanted from him was power. And so they saw in him what they had wanted. How often do people do this? So in our preconceived ideas, we start planning for God. They wanted Jesus to be king. And their idea is to force him to do it. We'll get him and we will make him king. They saw in Jesus the potential for a successful rebellion. They saw in Jesus the one that they, they thought could finally break them from their affliction. Now, we may not be in the same situation looking for freedom from Rome, but how often is Jesus taken by force for our own agendas? And we get thrown slogans uh, to, to try and force us that idea upon us. What would Jesus do or what would Jesus drive? Or how would Jesus vote? And it doesn't matter who you are or what you believe about Jesus. Everyone can use their position to justify what Jesus would drive or how Jesus would vote or how he would preach. We can use Jesus to justify whatever we want. And we do. How often are our prayers shaped like this? We've determined what we want. And we've usually determined how we should get it. And so we ask God to empower our plans. Dear God, do what I want. We know what we want, and so we push God to do it. People don't set the agenda. Jesus does. In our preconceived ideas, as we start planning for God we find his presence of power departs. While they're trying to take Jesus as king, 
to make him do what they want him to do, Jesus leaves. And he goes off by himself. Jesus knew what they wanted. You remember when he got around the lake and he saw him, we're told he knew why they followed him there. They followed him there because they wanted to see the tricks. He knew what was in their heart. Hebrews tells us, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So while they're planning and while they're scheming, Jesus is leaving. Have you ever noticed how hard things get when we try to plan God's agenda? God empowers people on his agenda. He does not empower people's agendas. God empowers his people for his purpose. So we need more retreating from the crowd. Verse 15, he departed into a mountain himself alone. Why is he there? He is there for prayer. That's why he crossed the lake in the first place. That's why he's over there to begin with, to pray, to get some peace, to get some quiet. In fact, Mark tells us and lays it out specifically. He says to his disciples, you have served hard, you are weary. Let's go aside for some rest and some quiet. You can see the relentless pace they had kept and their need for rest. You know, the idea and the significance of Sabbath is disappearing in our society and in our Christian lives. Though we don't celebrate Sabbath on Saturday as the Jews did, that doesn't mean the concept of Sabbath is done away with. The concept of Sabbath comes before the law. So just because we don't have a Saturday Sabbath doesn't mean we should not heed the rule of Sabbath. God gave us the Sabbath. God exampled the Sabbath and the idea of rest. Jesus did not let busyness of the time he was in steal away his rest and his time alone with the Father. So he leaves to pray. And when he had sent the multitudes away, Matthew tells us, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. God intends for us to stop, to rest, and to worship. That's what Sunday was meant to be for in the new covenant. To stop, to rest, to worship. That's how God designed us to be. Like Jesus, we need rest. We need dedicated time with our God. Psalm 130, a song uh, Anae and I sung a little while ago, but whose hope is so great. It says, I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait And in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. But why? Why do we need this rest? Why do we need this Sabbath? Why do we need this time alone to rest and to worship? We need the prayer and the word to prepare us for the world. To be able to live what God has given us to do in this world. Time in worship prepares me for the world. It sets me on God's agenda. 
See, that's why our prayers are so often selfish. That's why our desires and our agendas are so often selfish is because we do not spend enough time finding out what God's agenda is. So I enter the day, I enter my life, I enter my season of life, not knowing what God's agenda is, and so I set my own. Jesus said he came to do the will of him that sent him. This is our duty. So the disciples, as Jesus goes away, he sends the disciples down to the, to the lake, to the Sea of Galilee, and he tells them, you get in the boat, I'm going up here alone, you get in the boat, you sail across, you get your alone time while I get mine. And it's while they're out in that boat that the storm comes. And Jesus knew it was coming. He'd planned for it to come. And while they're out there, we find a place where sometimes it feels like you're rowing alone. And you can't make it across. Verse 17, and they entered the ship, went over the sea toward Capernaum, and it was now dark. And Jesus was not come to them, and the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship, and they were afraid. But he saith unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. Yes, this is also the time where Peter walks on the water, but that's not pertinent to the lesson that John is teaching us here. So Jesus sends his disciples to the boat. Usually they would set sail before evening, before sunset came. That's typically when the storms would come. But perhaps they were waiting down on the shore for a little while. It seems to indicate that they waited for a little bit. Maybe they were waiting for Jesus to come down and join them. And then by this stage they realized, well, it's starting to get dark. If we're going to go, we need to go now. And Jesus will just have to meet us there. And so they get in the boat and it's, it's late. It's after the usually time that they would set sail. So they set sail in the lake and they set sail without Jesus. At least it seems they set sail without Jesus. Mark tells us in Mark chapter 6 that while they're in the boat and seemingly Jesus is not there, Mark tells us that Jesus is on the shore and he is watching. So he is there. He's just not in the boat with them. He's standing on the shore watching them in the storm. He's there. So Jesus puts them in one crisis, then immediately puts them into another crisis that is even more intense. And this is part of his plan. It's part of his purpose. The purpose of God in the perils of life. Imagine the scene. I'm told because the Sea of Galilee is so far below sea level and it's surrounded by hills all around, it makes like a cup area in that, that place. And in the evening, the wind, the cold air rushes down from the hills and onto the sea and it can very easily whip up very big storms in that time and churns up the lake very easily. While they're on the sea, it's dark, it's cold, it's windy and noisy, they are tired, and they are probably completely overwhelmed. They left the shore somewhere between six and nine that night. 
It's after sunset, probably closer to six, you would think, but somewhere between six and nine, the first watch of the night. Jesus does not meet them out there until the fourth watch of the night, which is somewhere between three and six in the morning. So they have spent the whole night laboring in the storm. And while they have spent the whole night laboring in the storm, Jesus has stood on the shore watching. He watched them toil all night long. He watched them row and row, and they're only about four kilometers out. They're exhausted, they're overwhelmed, and fear is rising in them. They're caught in the storm. It was calm when it started. Twelve men, twelve strong men, many of them experienced fishermen, all working together, could not get this boat to the other side. They were unable to overpower the waves. They were completely at the mercy of the sea. And in the mercy of the sea, in the darkness of the night, they're in the fear of the unknown. It's dark. They can't see except for what lights may be lining the shore that late at night. These are fishermen, many of them. They know the danger of being in this storm on this sea at night. The weariness that they feel increases their fear. Perhaps the experienced fishermen weren't quite so afraid, perhaps, as the storm began. But certainly, by the time it's coming to its peak, in the early hours of the morning, something has come over them, because they see a figure walking on the water, and it fills them with fear. They don't know it's Jesus. In fact, it tells us that they think it's a ghost. Some suggest that, that perhaps what they think they see is, is a tradition that was around at the time that, that the, the angel was coming to get them. This was their last hour, and they're so afraid because the angel was coming to take them away. And they're filled with fear, fear of death, terrified. And the one they see that is walking on the water comes and is walking it seems almost past them, the Bible says. In Mark chapter 6 and verse 8, as he describes, it says, And he saw them toiling in rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed them by. Notice again, they didn't see him in the storm, but he was watching them. They've worked all night. All night they have worked, all night they have toiled, all night they have rowed to no avail. Meanwhile, Jesus strolls with ease on the sea through the storm. They're doing their best and can't make it. And Jesus comes to them walking on water in the midst of a storm. It's interesting that Jesus waits until the height of the storm before he comes out. It's at its peak when their weariness has set in 
He was there. He knew when the storm started. He knew the 12 were in the boat. He'd sent them down there. At the first sign of trouble, though, Jesus did not rush down to their aid. He put them in the boat. He said, set sail. And he goes up. He sees the storm come in, and he doesn't go rushing down from his prayer to take them out of what could be a terrible storm. He lets them endure it. Jesus knew what was going on. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. The things that frighten us, the things that weary us, they don't frighten or weary Jesus. While we're toiling to no avail in the storms of life, Jesus is walking so easily through the storm, he could almost pass us by. But he doesn't pass us by. He stops. So in the storm, we remember Jesus is trustworthy. In the height of the storm, we remember Jesus is trustworthy, it says, but he saith unto them, it is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. In remembering that he is trustworthy, we remember two things particularly here, his perfect character. What is it that changes everything for the disciples? What changes everything? from the weariness and the torment and the trial and, the, and the, of the, the midst of the storm in the sea, what changes it all? Be not afraid, it's me. The word of Jesus. His words change everything. We're reminded again of the importance of retreating with him, of knowing his voice, of knowing his word. Jesus' words here are simple, but they're rich. They're life-giving. His words calm their fears. His words open their hearts. And with his words, they are certain it's Jesus. And that is all they needed to give them hope, to give them courage. After hearing Jesus' words, Peter is going to get out of the boat. That's a story related in another gospel. But why do his words bring so much help? Because his words tell us his character. It wasn't just that he was there. It was who was there that made the difference. It is I, he says. It's not the same word, but it certainly reminds me of the, the phrase that John will use often and will begin to see more often, and that is his phrase of I am, the self-existent one. He calms the sea because he created the sea. He calms the soul because he created the soul. He is the creator and the sustainer and the master of all. His words flow from his character, and what they know of his character meant they didn't have to be afraid. His presence and his character dispel fear. 
And so, our perfect response, worship. Worship. Matthew 14. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying of a truth, thou art the Son of God. Does that sound familiar? John 6 verse 14, that was the point of the first miracle. That was the point of the feeding of the 5,000. And here again, after the storm, they fall down and worship. Truly, you are the Son of God. Jesus is reinforcing what we began by feeding the 5,000. Jesus did what they couldn't do. So the response is worship. We like to think that God takes us through a trial. We learn the lesson of the trial, long or short perhaps, and then it's smooth sailing for a while. We get through it, and God says, you've learned the lesson. You've earned a break. But God's work isn't always one trial, one lesson. Here's your trial. You've learned the lesson. Have a break. Here's your trial. Here's your lesson. Have a break. In fact, it's rare that we see that in the word of God. It's rare we experience it in life. Sometimes he purposely makes life very intense, very overwhelming. Too many Christians have believed the lie that we see on the coffee cups and the posters all around that God will never give you more than you can handle. That is not true. And the Bible does not say that anywhere. That is not what 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 means. God always gives you more than you can handle. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves. Why? That we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The truth is, God always gives you more than you can handle, but never more than he can handle. That's what the Bible teaches. He will always give you more than you can handle so that you will learn that it's never more than he can handle. Why did Paul have the thorn in the flesh that would not go away? So that he would learn to trust Jesus. We give glory in our weakness. His strength and our work in our weakness leads us to worship. Sometimes it takes a storm to open our eyes to who God really is. When we see him, we need to fall down and worship. The whole situation 
and lessons to learn sounds so much like what we heard in the feeding of the 5,000. They're almost identical in the lessons that we learn and the, the way it plays out. And so here is how Mark records the aftermath of this. And he went up to them into the ship. The wind ceased and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. For their heart was hardened. They didn't learn the first time. They were there with the loaves and the fishes to learn that God could provide what they needed. So God put them in the next one immediately. And they hadn't learned the lesson of the fishes. And so they fretted in the sea. And that's why God did it. So they would learn the lesson. The very same day, just hours before, they'd seen Jesus miraculously feed a huge crowd. Within hours, in an overwhelming trial, they forgot what they had seen just hours before. Sometimes one trial just isn't enough. We need to learn to trust God. We spend too much time toiling in our own rowing, trying to do what God can do easily, fretting about our situation. So what lessons can we learn? Firstly, take time to be alone with God. So that secondly, we learn to let God set the agenda of our life. So thirdly, we will learn to rely on God. We're going to say these words as our benediction shortly. But Ephesians 3 verse 20 says, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what we see of the the apostles here strike so deeply close to home because it is our lives almost identically. You work, you free, you are glorified, and then we forget. We pray, dear God, that as you take us through this life and you bring us through whatever trials, whatever journey you have before us, that we would learn the lesson that you were teaching the apostles here. Rely on you. Trust you. You will never take us anywhere that you cannot rescue us. Let us find in you our absolute sufficiency. In Jesus' name, amen.